everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast one man's musings on the works of Stephen King each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication which brings us to 1991's ultimate small town tale the much publicized final Castle Rock story where King finally explores the question of what happens when the devil comes to town and opens up a shop that has everything that you need for a price this novel, of course, is Needful Things. Now, I'm a huge Castle Rock fan. I'm the type of fan, in general, for pop culture that loves little shout-outs, references, Easter eggs. I just, I, I love interconnectivity to stories. I like when an author makes me stop, think, and piece together places, events, and characters. So, the ongoing saga of Castle Rock is one of the reasons why I always gravitated to Stephen King. My memories of Needful Things, the supposed last Castle Rock story, have always been very positive. In fact, if you were to ask me, um, before I sat down and, and reread this again, um, what my favorite uh, top five Stephen King books were, um, and I'm sure that someday I'll devote an episode to, to a ranking like that, um, I, I would say that Needful Things is in there. In fact, I would say that it's very close to that list. Um, whether or not it still is based on this reread uh, remains to be seen. Um, but I have had nothing but great experiences reading this novel. The first time I read it, I loved it. And then I remember the second time I read it, I think that I loved it even more. I was in high school uh, at that point. I just remember specifically lying on my bed in the summer, the air conditioner blasting. I went out to the grocery store. I got one of those uh, Reese's. Uh, peanut butter cup friendlies sundays um i just remember eating that loving life loving reading this book everything was cool it was hot out outside it was just everything just kind of came together at that moment it was just one of those perfect memories that just has stuck with me and, and needful things is right there and another reason why i love it is is because king had so effectively crafted a hero in the pages of the dark half with sheriff pangborn you know, most of the time I would say that King's villains, you know, steal the spotlight. But in the dark half, as good as George Stark was, Pangborn endured. And here, when Leland Gaunt rolls into town, Pangborn establishes himself as a bona fide threat to the ancient, to the, uh, ancient nickel and dimer. So, how does it fare? Uh, let's find out. But first, uh, I want to get to uh, some listener emails. Um... Up first, we, we have Wes, who has written in before, and Wes uh, writes, Hi, it's me again. I'm listening to part two of the It review, and hope you don't mind a dissenting opinion on one aspect of your review. I respectfully disagree with your thought that Tom Rogan brings nothing to the story. I can see where you're coming from, and I'll admit up front that my opinion on Tom's role is primarily based on the fact that one scene he's in absolutely terrified a 12-year-old me. And in fact, the most terrifying thing that I've ever read. In fact, the 42-year-old me is currently reading it for the 12th time, and as I've done on previous rereads of my favorite book, I'm contemplating skipping over it when I get to it. 
I'm currently 32 minutes into your podcast, so I don't know if you touch on this scene or not, but the scene I'm talking about is when Tom dreams that he's in the sewer as Henry Bowers. It's been many years since I've read it, so I can't recall all the particulars right now. I just remember being so scared when I read it for the first time that it took me a couple days to feel normal again. There are, in my opinion, a couple scenes in The Stand that come close. The Lincoln Tunnel, the one involving the Rat Man. But going back to Tom, that scene alone warrants his presence in the book, in my opinion. I also think, like, the way... I also think, like, the way he's written and the fact that Bev basically married her father is significant to the story also. I don't know if there is any intended symbolism to this, but the fact that he kidnaps Audra seems somewhat significant to me. Here we have two people who, while married to the members of the Losers Club, are both outsiders to the club in a sense, and rather than have Henry Bowers kidnap her, which would have been a huge mistake in my opinion, Pennywise uses the spouse of one member against another. In a weird way, Audra's kidnapping feels more personal to me than even taunting Bill as Georgie or some of the other horrible things he does to the losers. I don't know how well I explained myself, but since you said you welcome input from listeners, I figured I'd reach out, and I'm sure it won't be the last time. I not only enjoy your podcast, but really appreciate the effort that you put into it. Being a lifelong King fan, I found surprisingly few people over the years that I can actually discuss his books with, and it's great to be able to listen to an intelligent, well-thought-out opinion of many of my favorite books. Once again, keep up the great work. Wes. Wes, thank you for writing in, and I'm going to um, request everyone out there, please send in more emails like this. Um, I love a back-and-forth because, like I said, I, I think that I said in the very first episode uh, when I did the Carrie review, I mean, I don't want, I mean, I, 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 these are just my opinions, right? So um, I personally feel as though Tom's inclusion later on in it, I just find it unnecessary. Um, but, but Wes brings up some valid reasons why uh, Tom should be included. Um, so, I mean, really what it comes down to is, is your own opinion. Um, so I'm just interested to see what, what other people think. I mean, if you, if you fall on, uh, you know, the side of Wes or, you know, me, um, just because I, I would just kind of like to see, uh, where we all fall in that particular, um, area. But Wes, I mean, that, that's great. I mean, I, I, I need more emails like this. Um, so please keep them coming. All right. Um. If you have not done so, before I get to the Wikipedia summary, um, I'm just going to ask everyone, if you like the Stephen King cast, then please head on over to iTunes to write a review, um, because that would greatly help me out, get the the word out there uh, for the Stephen King cast. I know that so many of you are um, not just fans, but I mean... You know, some of you out there are, are are true champions of this podcast. You're you're telling people about it. You're recommending it. Um, so I mean, I can't thank you enough. I cannot thank you enough. Um, and the iTunes review will go a long way in in in, in supporting uh, this podcast. And as always, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. All right, with the shameless uh, begging for help out of the way, I'm going to get back to needful things. Um, and read the Wikipedia summary so that I will have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Needful Things. A new shop named Needful Things opens in the town of Castle Rock, Maine, sparking the curiosity of its citizens. The proprietor, Leland Gaunt, is a charming elderly gentleman who always seems to have an item in stock 
that is perfectly suited to any customer who comes through his door. The prices are surprisingly low considering the merchandise, such as a rare Sandy Kalfax baseball card, a carnival glass lampshade, and a fragment of wood believed to be from Noah's Ark. But he expects each customer to also play a little prank on someone else in Castle Rock. Gaunt knows about the long-standing private grudges, arguments, and feuds between the various townspeople, and the pranks are his means of forcing them to escalate until the whole town is eventually caught up in madness and violence. Sheriff Alan Pangborn becomes wary of Gaunt as soon as the shop opens. However, his lover, Polly Chalmers, dismisses his suspicions and buys an ancient charm that relieves the arthritis pain in her hands. Tensions rapidly grow after Nettie Cobb, Polly's housekeeper, and her enemy, Wilma Jerzyk, kill each other in a confrontation sparked by pranks played on them by others. Many other rivalries begin to fester, spurred by the personal motives of the people involved, drugs, secret pedophilia, bad business dealings, religious disagreements, etc. Gaunt eventually hires petty criminal John Ace Merrill as his assistant, providing him with the high-quality cocaine and hinting at buried treasure that could relieve the debt he owes to a pair of drug dealers. Ace's first assignment is to retrieve crates of pistols, ammunitions, and blasting caps from a garage in Boston. Gaunt soon begins to sell the pistols to his customers so they can protect their property. They become so paranoid about keeping their items safe that they eagerly buy up the weapons that he inevitably offers and trade away their souls. Ace begins to suspect the supernatural background of his new employer, but Gaunt keeps him in line through intimidation and promises of revenge against Alan and the town. With the violence in Castle Rock rapidly escalating, Ace and the town's head selectman Danforth Buster Keaton, who has embezzled thousands of dollars from public funds, plant dynamite all over town using the caps Ace brought back. Alan sets out to kill Ace, wrongly believing him to be responsible for a car accident that killed his wife and son, and Polly realizes the evil of the charm she bought and destroys it. As the dynamite bombs explode and Keaton is killed, Ace takes Polly hostage and demands that Alan hand over a hoard of cash he illegally stole from one of the sites Ace dug up. One of Alan's deputies kills Ace, leaving Alan to face off against Gaunt. Using sleight of hand and magic novelties that suddenly come to life, Alan forces Gaunt back and grabs his bag which contains the souls of his customers. Gaunt flees the scene, his car turning into a horse-drawn wagon as he becomes a hunched-back dwarf and the survivors are left to ponder an uncertain future. The novel ends as it begins with the first-person narrative indicating that a new and mysterious shop is about to open in a small Iowa town an implication that Gaunt is ready to begin his business cycle all over again. Alright, time for the analysis. Needful Things begins with the text, You've Been Here Before, which works on a few levels. First, yes, it's true. With this being the last Castle Rock story, King is acknowledging his previous Castle Rock stories. More so, he's hinting at the eternal struggle between good and evil, between willpower and temptation. Both interpretations speak to one of King's uh, reoccurring themes of cycles, which we've seen in It, the Dark Tower series, and most recently with The Stand. From there, King's narrator welcomes us back to Castle Rock. The narrator speaks directly to us, giving the introduction the feeling of Thornton Wilder's Our Town, so it should come as no surprise that our narrator mentions Grover's Corners, as well as Peyton Place, the novel that partially inspired King to write Salem's Lot. 
our unnamed narrator introduces us back to the rock, establishing the October setting and introducing many of our characters. More importantly, our narrator, our narrator slips in the small town secrets of the characters referred to in this opening, which is like introducing the bullets before loading them. Secrets are harmless unless you do something with them, same as bullets. At this point in his career, King has established that he knows how to write small town life and knows how to capture the personalities that make the small town feel honest. Within the first eight pages of this novel, King sets the Castle Rock as the ultimate small town story. The introduction is specifically Castle Rock, but it, it is the collective unconscious of the small town. With the narrator, we feel both within the town and simultaneously outside of the town, watching the characters go about their lives like ants in an anthill. The conflicting sensation is the distillation of what Needful Things is all about. How those small-town insecurities, jealousies, fantasies, characteristics of a micro-level are soon to merge with the universal conflicts of good and evil. That's just small-town life. Call it Peyton Place or Grover's Corners or Castle Rock. It's just folks eating pie and drinking coffee and talking about each other behind their backs. Is a quote from, from the novel. Here King grounds us in the normal, the everyday. But then a paragraph later, he reminds us that while he's established this to be the quintessential small town, there's a past history that reveals a darker nature to Castle Rock. So, um, he writes, All ordinary enough, I guess you'd say, but not all our troubles in Castle Rocks are ordinary. I gotta set you straight on that. No one has forgotten Frank Dodd, the crossing guard who went crazy here 12 years ago and killed those women. And they haven't forgotten the dog either, the one that came down with rabies and killed Joe, Joe Camber and the old rummy down the road from him. The dog killed good old Sheriff George Bannerman too. Alan Pangborn is doing that job these days and he's a good man, but he won't never stack up to Big George in the eyes of the town. Wasn't nothing ordinary about what happened to Reginald Pop Merrill either. Pop was the old miser who used to run the town junk shop. The Emporium Glorium, it was called. Stood right where that vacant lot is right now across the street. Place burned down a while ago, but there are people in town who saw it, or claim they did anyway, who will tell you after a few beers down at the Mellow Tiger that it was a lot more than a simple fire that destroyed the Emporium Glorium and took Pop Merrill's life. His nephew Ace says something spooky happened to his uncle before that fire, something like on the Twilight Zone. Of course, Ace wasn't even around when his uncle bit the dust. He was finishing a four-year stretch in Shawshank Prison for breaking and entering in for nighttime. People always knew Ace Merrill would come to a bad end. When he was in school, he was one of the worst bullies this town has ever seen. And there must have been a hundred kids who crossed the far side of the street when they saw Ace coming towards them with the buckles and the zippers of his motorcycle jacket jingling and all the cleats on his engineer boots clocking along the sidewalk. Yet people believe him, you know. Maybe there really was something strange about what happened to Pop that day. Or maybe it's just more talk in Nan's over those cups of coffee and slabs of apple pie. Here, King argues that this is the nature of small towns. That you have to take the bad with the good. That every now and then the equilibrium is punctuated by a spike in real aggression, real horror, that allows the status quo to be appreciated that much more. This might be the most appropriate and best written introduction to a King novel yet. I've already read a couple excerpts, and frankly, I could read the whole thing. 
The narrator then speaks with a precognitive warning for us to keep our eyes on Brian, the boy walking close to the new shop that's moved in uh, into town. He warns us that he thinks the petty squabbles and feuds are going to be different this time. Though he just stated that this is the nature of small towns, he wonders if this time things are so different that things will change for good. One, the fact that King referenced all the events in Castle Rock's history leading up to this is a nice way to A, establish its history, and B, set the stage for an even bigger bad when Leland Gaunt opens his shop. Secondly, the purpose of the novel, to write the last Castle Rock story, is presented right up front. With the ominous statement that a storm is coming, the reader should be worried that it's going to blow this town away. I mean, the other famous King's small town is Salem's Lot, and we know what happened to that, so we know that when King finishes telling a story about a small town, you wouldn't want to live there as he gets to those final chapters. Lastly, it hints at a theme that has been working into the DNA of Salem's Lot years before. The vampires symbolize the larger world encroaching upon small towns, whether it be gentrification or the evolving globalization of everyday life. Similarly, King presents a threat to a small town that comes from the outside. The threat capitalizes on what is already in the town. But the end of the world wouldn't have come to Castle Rock if Leland Gaunt hadn't whipped them into a frenzy. King wrote this novel as a commentary on the materialism of the 1980s and what happens when it's time to pay for what that you have sought after. So part one, grand opening celebration. With the friendly and ominous narrator taking a back seat, we focus on Brian, the boy the narrator told us would get it started. He becomes our eyes and ears, our ground view for Castle Rock. We learn of his mother's gossipy ways, how the incoming shop is throwing the town in a tizzy, King must be having a ball as he parodies small town life because I want to note that that's what he's doing because of scenes like the one where Brian comes home to tell his mother of an awning. She rushes to the phone to keep her friend Myra updated. When I picture these two, I picture news anchors with the Needful Things news feed constantly streaming across the bottom of the screen. Breaking news, one of them reports. This just in, Cora says. It's been reported that Needful Things, the incoming shop, has a new awning. What kind of awning? Aluminum? No, Myra. We are hearing word that the awning is cloth. King foreshadows the nature of needful things as Brian makes his way downtown. Before he enters the store, he's lost in a daydream fantasy where he and his teacher are together and Brian is shocked out of that fantasy upon the arrival of Hugh Priest, who almost runs him down. The beautiful dream of Miss Radcliffe is beautifully contrasted with the run-in with the misanthropic Hugh Priest. As if Brian instinctually knows he's in a horror novel, he debates whether to go inside the store, whose sign now reads, Open. He jokes with himself about the possibility of the owner being Norman Bates. King has done an incredible job at building up the mystery of this store when Brian decides to enter it. The turn of the brass knob has seismic repercussions. And then we meet our scene-stealing villain the wonderful Leland Gaunt who emerges behind the curtains like an actor stepping onto his stage on page 22. He was about to grasp the doorknob and pull the door shut again when a voice replied, I'm here. A tall figure, what at first seemed to be an impossibly tall figure, came through a doorway behind one of the display cases. The doorway was masked with a dark velvet curtain. Brian felt a momentary and quite monstrous cramp of fear. 
Then the glow thrown by one of the spots slanted across the man's face, and Brian's fear was allayed. The guy was quite old, and his face was very kind. He looked at Brian with interest and pleasure. Your door was unlocked, Brian began, so I thought... Of course it's unlocked, the tall man said. I decided to open for a little while this afternoon as a kind of, of preview. And you are my very first customer. Come in, my friend, enter freely, and leave some of the happiness you bring. He smiled and stuck out his hand. The smile was infectious. Brian felt an instant liking for the proprietor of Needful Things. He had to step over the threshold and into the shop to clasp the tall man's hand, and he did so without a single qualm. The door swung shut behind him and latched of its own accord. Brian did not notice. He was too busy noticing that the tall man's eyes were dark blue, exactly the same shade as Miss Sally Radcliffe's eyes. They could have been father and daughter. The tall man's grip was strong and sure, but not painful. All the same, there was something unpleasant about it, something smooth, too hard somehow. I'm pleased to meet you, Brian said. Those dark blue eyes fastened on his face like the hooded railroad lanterns. I am equally pleased to make your acquaintance, the tall man said. And that was how Brian Rusk met the proprietor of Needful Things before anyone else in Castle Rock. King immediately starts throwing out details about Gaunt that establishes he, his uniqueness, how he stands out from the rest. His eyes, his ever-changing eyes, his likability, his warm smile of crooked teeth, and the fact that the index and middle fingers are exactly the same length. The physical descriptions serve as warning signs to his clientele who are so easily ensnared in his webbing of charisma and false kindness. Right away, King shows us how the shop Needful Things will play into the last Castle Rock story. Brian receives a vision while holding the petrified remains of Noah's Ark. And when Brian asks for a specific Sandy Koufax baseball card, he gets it, one signed directly to him from Sandy himself. By page 35, King shows us what Gaunt is up to. He sells the magic baseball card for less than a dollar and a favor to Mr. Gaunt. King then introduces us to Polly Chambers, who has, or Polly Chalmers, sorry, who has been referred to in the Dark Half and Sundog. She's presented to us as different from the rest of the townsfolk, something that King writes as a compliment. Polly is introduced perfectly uh, through a critical condemnation of the town's lady's perspective. It's King commenting on the lady's comment of Polly, which shows as much disdain from the narrator's point of view towards his subject, the ladies, as the ladies' disdain of their subject, Polly. Polly's introduction is swallowed with rumor, gossip, and speculation. She's not introduced as a character, but as a conversation piece. The unwed mother who fled Castle Rock and returned alone. With the town's introduction out of the way, we get to our real introduction of Polly, who suffers from debilitating arthritis. Just as Gaunt drew Brian to him in his own way, he lures Polly in in a different way, as she is attracted to him. It's during this conversation that the story um, behind the store's name is revealed. He explains that when it comes to a price, he thinks of it as defining worth by need. After that, the townsfolk start coming in, and King seems to have a blast detailing the little power struggles as Gaunt haggles with his clientele. Not long after, we are introduced, or re reintroduced if you've read The Dark Half, to Sheriff Alan Pangborn in a very effective scene in which we learn about the death of his wife and son. In the pages of The Dark Half, he was made with such resolve and strength it's hard to see him like this. 
More importantly, we are reminded of his penchant for magic tricks, a fascination that was shared by his son, Todd. With the backstory established, King provides the seeds for one of the conflicts that will detonate with the manipulations of Gaunt, the entitlement of Buster Keaton, and Alan's political maneuvering that requires Norris to ticket Buster for illegally parking. This is King laying the groundwork for plot. But he knows his characters are his bread and butter, so he gives us five pages of a conversation between Alan and Polly. Most of it's a recap of what we've already read, but it doesn't feel unnecessary. It, it honestly feels honest and lived in. And during it, he's able to reveal more about the characters of Wilma and Nettie, their feud, and Nettie's stay in Juniper Hill. Nettie later enters the store by herself, what looks like a sign of her independence, but it was really the allure of Leland Gaunt who exchanges carnival glass for a prank on Buster. We finally meet Buster in the next scene, a character who King first name-dropped in the dark half. Writing this character must feel like slipping into a comfy pair of shoes. The alpha male blowhard is one of King's most reoccurring tropes, and Buster is the king of the alpha males. The alpha alpha male, if you will. Make no mistake, however, Buster isn't a character. King paints him so larger than life, so buffoonishly cartoonish in his rage and insecurities that he's a complete caricature. It's an incredibly fun caricature to read about. Him storming into the bathroom, threatening Norris, his face described as red as a nuclear test site. When Norris accidentally blurts out Buster rather than Danforth, we see how that nickname sets off Buster's anger into another stratosphere, a story beat which is necessary for when he eventually crosses the line he can never uncross. And our hero steps into the bathroom like a gunfighter in an old saloon, breaking it up and immediately taking control of the situation. Alan's meeting with Buster in his office is electric, with Pangborn immediately understanding that Buster is wired up from something outside the norm, but doesn't stop him from laying down the law. And just to give us a glimpse into the life of a small-town sheriff, he ushers out Danforth and ushers in Reverend Willie, who King also seems to love writing. In my bonus episode of The Dark Half, I spoke of how Alan Pangborn could have been Stephen King's Jack Reacher, his Jack Ryan, the repairman Jack, um, and then other characters not named Jack, including Charlie Parker, Agent Pendergast. Basically what I mean by that is that King could have written a series of episodic novels with Alan at its center. A small town sheriff by day battling otherworldly evil by night. And it seems like the ones that we are given here that makes me sad when we didn't get to see that because I could read about Alan dropping truth bombs on people all day. And then now it's time for our first deed. And because Brian was our first customer it makes sense that he should be the first one to start. Before he can talk himself out of it, Brian receives a vision of Mr. Gaunt, one that is closer to the real Gaunt than the charming shop owner that he's been presented as so far, which comes on page 105. The driver's door opened and Mr. Leland Gaunt stepped out. Only Mr. Gaunt was no longer wearing a smoking jacket like the one Sherlock Holmes wore in some of the stories. The Mr. Gaunt, who now strode across the landscape of Brian's imagination, wore a formidable black suit, the suit of a funeral director, and his face was no longer friendly. His dark blue eyes were even darker in anger, and his lips had pulled back from his crooked teeth, but not in a smile. His long, thin legs went scissoring up the walk to the rusk front door, 
and the shadow man attached to its heels looked like a hangman in a horror movie. When he got to the door, he would not pause to ring the bell, oh no, he would simply barge in. If Brian's ma tried to get in his way, he would push her aside. If Brian's pa tried to get in his way, he would knock him down. And if Brian's little brother Sean tried to get in his way, he would leave him, he would heave him the length of the house like a quarterback throwing a Hail Mary. He would stride upstairs, bellowing Brian's name, and the roses on the wallpaper would wilt when that hangman's shadow passed over him. What makes this novel so deliciously sinister are the deeds themselves. The initial deeds are pretty tame, so asking someone to play a prank shouldn't make you think of good or evil or the ruin of a small town. Surely, throwing mud on clean sheets shouldn't be enough to start a forest fire. But with the introduction to the novel, with our narrator presenting us with every town's secret, jealousy, resentment, and insecurity, he presented us with dry kindling soaked in gasoline, waiting for the smallest of sparks to ignite the pile. And that's what this is. Out of context, mud on sheets is just mud on sheets. But here in this town, with a puppet master guiding our townsfolk into a performance all for himself, it's the kickoff that sends everything into action. Gaunt, meanwhile, continues to work the townsfolk, now pitting Myra Rose and Cora Rusk against each other over a picture of Elvis. The absurdity of that is what makes this great. As is the dual meeting in Gaunt's line to her as she enters the store. Um, he says, welcome back, enter freely, and leave some of the happiness you bring. One, it can be interpreted as Gaunt inviting Myra to bring some of the happiness into the shop, but it can also be interpreted as once you enter, you have to part with some of the happiness you bring. That interpretation speaks to the selling of souls. And then we get our first Elvis Presley fantasy sequence, the first of many. King hilariously transitions between the fantasy presented through Myra's eyes to the reality presented through Gaunt's eyes, where he watches her in um, very indignified and very unsexy throes of passion. With Myra's scene, we get the most villainous depiction of Gaunt yet, who doesn't just require a deed, but also shakes as much money out of her as he can and debases her while he's at it. And you can tell how much of a ball Gaunt is having here. Now, unlike other villainous King characters, Gaunt is one who is sowing evil for entertainment. Barlow was a monster. Margaret White was even worse. The Overlook wanted to consume a family. Greg Stilson wanted the presidency. John Rainbird wanted to befriend a pyrokinetic child before killing her. Christine wanted to devour a friendship. Cujo wanted to murder everything in its path. Pennywise wanted to eat children. Annie Wilkes tortured Paul Sheldon. The Tommyknockers wanted to take over the world. George Stark wanted to kill everyone that was responsible for his death. They are all so different from Leland Gaunt. Yeah, Randall Flagg had mirth, but his goal was to obliterate the last of mankind. Leland Gaunt looks like he's just bored and has nothing better to do than just stir the pot. Checking back in with Alan and Polly, King foreshadows the conflict between he and Gaunt with the character of Nan, who isn't the kindly restaurant owner she appears to be. Alan states he'd like to know people as they are, and the deceptive nature of Nan's identity mirrors Gaunt's own. King very rarely writes of happy relationships. I mean, we have our Jack and Wendy Torrances, we had Johnny and Sarah, we had Artie and Lee, Bobby and Guard, Thad and Liz. I mean, these are not exactly the stable foundations of a lasting, healthy relationship. 
But he has been known to write a few. Uh, Stu and Fran, Susanna and Eddie, uh, Sadie and Jake is probably the most recent and the one most potent. And with Alan and Polly, we are given a perfectly normal relationship with two people who genuinely like each other and enjoy spending time in each other's company. Their scenes together aren't dramatic in any way, and King allows space for their conversations to grow. Like how Polly talks about her day, or how she fills Alan in on both the background of Buster's family, and how to be discreet in public when gossiping about fellow townsfolk. Gaunt, meanwhile, continues to spin his web around town, with Wilma Jerzyk discovering her sheets and Norris succumbing to his own temptation. Now, Wilma is one hell of a character. She's a brute. She's a bully with a vicious mean streak. King has introduced us to dozens of the town's characters, so it's fun to watch the sparks fly when they start bouncing off of each other, especially Wilma and Nettie, who is on the verge of being pushed too far by the bully. King knows that Gaunt's machinations must evolve from mischievous to deadly, and we follow that evolution with the plotline of these two characters who are racing towards a bloody, brutal end. Meanwhile, Gaunt turns his eye on Pangborn, understanding that he's the only real threat in town, leveraging information from Cora Rusk with a pair of Elvis's sunglasses. King then presents us with an introspective scene with Alan, who details the aftermath of the Dark Half, and how the supernatural events of that novel gnawed at the edges of his sanity. We're treated to callbacks, the sparrows, the high-toned son-of-a-bitch Toronado, along with updates on Thad's alcoholism and dissolving marriage. Just as King hinted in the final pages of the Dark Half, just because the villain was vanquished does not mean Thad would be given a happy ending. We even get a cameo from Stark in the form of a dream or nightmare in which, Alice, in which Alan is haunted while shopping. With this being the last Castle Rock story, you can easily interpret this as less of a dream and more of an actual visitation by the ghost of George Stark who swings by to say goodbye on King's grand uh, finale tour of his most famous small town. After all, it won't be the last ghost we see. Almost 200 pages into the novel, King peels back the layers to reveal the vulnerable side to Alan, his guilt and obsession over the death of his wife and son. It's where the supernatural affects the natural on the most basic level. The hand of the devil didn't take control of the car before it crashed. And he hadn't become possessed by a malicious spirit. It's more simple than that. Um, Alan is naturally affected by the events um, of the dark half, as you and I would be. So affected, he doesn't pay as much attention to his wife's ailments as he otherwise would have if he hadn't bumped up against the complete unnatural. With Alan, King for the first time was able to explore the concept of ever after, and with it, we realize that happily can't be used to describe it. It's this vulnerability that Gaunt will later exploit. What really happened in the car the day his wife and son died? We soon get our first point of view with Buster, who sees himself as persecuted by the faceless they and the persecutors. Here we get the lengthy backstory of Buster's gambling addiction and his eventual introduction to Leland Gaunt. Really, what it is is the seduction of Buster Keaton as Gaunt masterfully manipulates Buster into a grateful, subservient role. He'll need Buster in the days to come because he knows he'll need to combat Alan, whose custodian tips off Gaunt that he's on his way. Gaunt quickly closes the store and uses the magic of being dim 
to peer at Alan through the window. And in a moment that shows the white magic within Alan, Alan sees Gaunt, if only for a moment. We realize here that Gaunt isn't the bull that Stark or Flag had been. You know, supernatural beings that plow through everything in their path. Gaunt is a manipulator. And with the fact that he hides from Alan, who frightens him, it shows us that Gaunt is vulnerable. We also understand that Alan sees through Gaunt's magic. He doesn't see the items on display as treasures that the others do, but the shams for what they really are. Gaunt in this scene is a full-on villain, monologuing to himself about how Pangborn will rue the day and emits fire from his fists to compensate for his insecurities over the strength that he senses in Pangborn. We are then given a scene that provides Polly's backstory, which functions as a mirror to Alan's two wounded souls drawn together from the death of children. Her own experience is what allows her to guide Alan through his grieving process. Polly's story is raw and earnest portrayal of loss and perseverance despite the tragedy. Polly is the most complex female character King has crafted yet, and I think that with her, King is testing the waters of the next phase of his career, the female as protagonist. After Needful Things, he's one book away from Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne, Insomnia, and Rose Matter, novels that all examine the female perspective, and I think that it all begins with Polly. He writes on page 225 when Polly thinks about her son who had passed away when she had lived in San Francisco. Maybe so, but he had been hers, goddammit, hers. In his life and in his death, he had been hers. And she had been hers too. Not her mother's, not her father's, Duke Sheehan's. She had belonged to herself. That frightened, lonely girl who had washed her panties out every night in the rusty kitchen sink because she had only three pairs. That frightened girl who always had a cold sore waiting to happen at the corner of her lip or on the rim of one nostril. That girl who sometimes sat at the window overlooking the air shaft and laid her hot forehead on her arms and cried. That girl was hers. Her memories of herself and her son together in the dark of night, Kelton feeding at one small breast while she read a John D. MacDonald paperback, and the disconnected sirens rose and raved through the cramped, hilly streets of the city. Those memories were hers. The tears she had cried, the silences she had endured, the long, foggy afternoons in the diner, trying to avoid Norville Bates' Roman hands and the Russian fingers, the shame with which she had finally made an uneasy peace, the independence and the dignity she had fought so hard and so inconclusively to keep, those things were hers and must not belong to the town. One thing's for certain, we have come a long way since Susan Norton. From this point on, it's build up to the game changer, the bloody, brutal battle between Wilma and Nettie. King constructs the scene just as how Gaunt maneuvers the townsfolk into position. Nettie's dog is murdered by Hugh. Brian realizes that Gaunt wants more deeds out of him and throws rocks through the Jersey's house. Nettie is given papers to place inside Buster's house. Again, King teases Gaunt's inhumanity whenever he touches someone. The person instinctively has a physical reaction of repulsion. It's not a conscious act, and shows that on some level they know that he's a monster. 
And speaking of monsters, we see Buster through his wife's eyes, and it's a situation very similar to Pete Jerzyk, who lives under the tyrannical rule of a vicious spouse. Though we're switching characters, Kim King keeps pushing down on the throttle. Nettie dilly-dallies during her prank on Buster, and King keeps cutting back to the Keatons, driving back to Castle Rock. Buster almost catches Natty in the act of decorating the house with pink sheets, but manages to escape, only to find Raider dead when she gets home. This occurs simultaneously with Wilma discovering Brian's latest prank, and both women, each thinking that the other is responsible, grabs a weapon and heads to each other's houses. Here is the culmination of the first act of the story, the crest of the first of the series of waves that will wash over Castle Rock. The altercation between the two characters is awful to read. Both of them are too wrapped up in their own hate to even start to think about why the other one is there. It is brutal and tragic and bloody and completely over the top. King then provides the aftermath through the perspective of Alan naturally, and we see both his warmth and leadership as he professionally handles the crime scene. Later, he comforts Polly and in doing so begins to suspect that the perfect nature to the double murder scene is just a little bit too perfect, and those nagging details just won't stop nagging. The scene reveals two things in particular. One, that Gaunt's stage performance doesn't hold up under close scrutiny, and two, Alan is the one to scrutinize. This is how it must have happened, he thought. Nettie comes home from Polly's and finds her dog dead on the hall floor. She reads the note on the corkscrew. Then she writes the same message on 14 or 16 sheets of paper and puts them in the pocket of her coat. She also gets a bunch of rubber bands. When she gets to Wilma's, she goes into the backyard. She piles up 14 or 16 rocks and uses the elastic bands to attach the notes. She must have done all of that prior to throwing any rocks. It would have taken too long if she had to stop in the middle of the festivities to pick out more rocks and attach more notes. And when she's done, she goes home and broods over her dead pet some more. It all felt wrong to him. It felt really lousy. Okay, everyone, I had to uh, put a pin in it right now. Uh, I, I finished recording the, the entire review, and then I tried to export it, but it was too long. So I, this has happened a couple times. It just happened with the, uh, the stand um, ABC TV miniseries. I had to just split it in half. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm splitting this one in half. So I'm releasing both on the same day, though. So you can just stop listening here. Uh, and um, as soon as the music is done playing out, Head on over to part two of Needful Thing and see you there. My mama told me you better shop around.